think we are. Yes, <laughs> we are. We are live. We are live with both Happy at Work and LinkedIn Live. And today we have a great guest to talk about happiness in the workplace, empowering workers, bringing positivity to the workplace. We have Alex Bennett, a futurist working for NT&T, which is what the largest, one of the largest technology companies in the whole world. And let's yeah. just, just right into it. He has so much smart stuff to share and he has his hands on the pulse of what's going on around the world. So without further ado, hey, Alex, maybe introduce yourself and let's start. Yeah, the pressure's on, Jack, with that introduction. <laughs> Not too much you pressure, much. right? <laughs> you just have to predict the future. No worries. That's right. It's easy. We'll and work we're, out we're... what hybrid workplace is by the end of this session. <laughs> so that would be that would be positive. So yeah, Alex Bennett, based here in London, but work all around the world with clients all around the world. And it's, it's a really interesting and fascinating time. And, and Jack, I think, you know, what we've spoken about with Mike and Tessa is ultimately what we're seeing from our clients is if you have happy employees, you have a happy business. You know, I think it, you've got the data to back it up. But actually getting to that point seems simple, but we're seeing real complexity now. And it, it culturally changes across all different areas of the world. So I think today, if we can have an open chat about some of those topics, I think that would be great. Alex, I'm curious about the data part. How, how are you using data uh, to see if people are happy without that big brother effect? How's that, how does that work? Yeah, We actually did a, a workplace report uh, last year and, and Jack and I spoke about that back in November and it was it was interesting because we saw only 30% of organizations we we interviewed about 1300 organizations from all around the world all different industry sectors HR IT you know exco and only 30% uh, actually had workplace analytics created so you're already starting with only a third of organizations are really starting to to track different forms of data to give them some level of insight. And what we also have found is that they're only actually tracking that in one area of the business that so might be in sales, or it might just be on a, an HR platform. I think what we're really starting to have conversations with clients about today, if you think about new ways of working is facilities management, HR, IT, sales, all different functions are having to go through this change. So if you are creating data in silos today, you can have real trouble in two to three years time, actually creating these things called digital twins, which can help you model what is the right way forward and predict what is the right way forward. Um, and you're right, it's, it's quite an interesting one when you go to different countries as well. You know, we, we work a lot in, in, in Europe, you know, you've got workers council, what can and can't you do with GDPR? So there's other components about anomalizing data and actually just looking at key trends. You know, human networks, are they shrinking? Are they improving with hybrid working? And how does that impact product development or innovation? So when you start to see this and anomalize it, you can actually start to think about actually how do you nudge? How do you nudge groups of people rather than individuals? Uh, and when countries where you don't have some of the issues around GDPR, you can really get down to quite specific areas and user groups and even personality traits and help them nudge in, into new ways of working. So Alex, I, you said the key word there, which is trends. So what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Um, it, it'd be interesting to kind of get a perspective if there's real differences between uh, Western culture versus Eastern or Europe versus the United States and so forth. But what are the trends as far as digital or other types of workplace trends that you're seeing in the marketplace? Well, I think many people have commented on this, that the trend was happening prior to the pandemic around flexibility. I think 
people have really started to try and drive around work-life balance, well-being, and that, I, I, that ideology of, of happiness. But were corporations really behind that when they were making profits and creating shareholder value? I think the pandemic really forced organizations to think about, hey, we're going to have to do a new way of working from a business continuity standpoint. And all of a sudden, they started saying, actually, productivity seems to be okay. We don't have to have that team coming in and seeing them face to face. But, but that also then, after a period of time, as we're seeing now, we're moving out of business continuity, actually, into true new ways of working. You still have hundreds of years of culture. So in Japan, Entity is a Japanese company. You know, culturally, you need to be seen you know, coming into the office prior to your boss, leaving. It's, it's sort of those aspects. So how do you change that within a two-year period? Um, so it's really about motivating and making sure, again, through data, you back up. Actually, you can be promoted. You can be seen by not turning up you know, five days a week and actually really adhering to what is this new flexibility. The, the other sort of topics we've seen in, in both South Africa and India is, is basics around connectivity or just, you know, where you actually perform your task now at home. You know, sometimes if you don't have huge amounts of space or you don't have air conditioning, it's actually very hard to work and communicate. And you might not want to communicate on video with clients if you don't feel comfortable about where your environment is or you've got you no know, family to look after because you, you, know, you really want to drive diversity inclusion now. So those factors we're seeing a higher percentage of people wanting to come back into a physical you know, corporate office environment where there is a set designated way of working and there's guaranteed network and so on. In, in America and Western Europe, you know, and, and generalizing a bit, you tend to have slightly more space you know, than a Tokyo. Um, and we're seeing more people saying, well, why would I want to come back to an office? I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm going for a run in the morning. I'm picking up my kids. I've got a nice you know, office here back in the house. Always good. So it's really different by, by culture and also by age. So if I can ask a follow up and, and really um, bring in Michael's uh, question from the beginning. So how can the collection of data help organizations really identify what is the appropriate and uh, best culture to cultivate uh, for their workplace environment? And how do they really ascertain that data from employees to know what do employees want and what will benefit them most and make them happiest in the workplace? Yeah. I think first you've got to, you've actually got to create your own benchmark. So I ask this a lot from every uh, company and you know, like a net promoter score, but a net promoter score could be slightly different dependent on where you are from the Netherlands to the US and how people respond, but also what is your culture and what do you stand for with your purpose? I think if you really get a good grounding in that area, you can start to come back and then look at, you know, moving to what are the personas, what are the roles which you're actually carrying out and, and what does that persona need to carry out the outcome? And I think this is the big change which we're starting to see now with data is you're actually starting to be able to move into more personality traits. So how do you start to look at the way people actually you know, providing insights around, yes, I don't really like coming into the office. You know, I'm actually more introverted. You know, I'm not sure if I want to participate in that type of role. But graph data, behavioral science, behavioral data can start to pick that up now with modeling. And everyone's just on the cusp of doing, sort of trying to correlate that. Well, what does that mean with how many people are coming in from an occupancy standpoint? How does it impact attraction retention of talent? Now, who's leaving? Who's being forced to come in? 
and, and trying to put that graph data together and use AI and modeling to give you some predictions around what, what that actually means. Well, and just one quick uh, follow up and then I'll hand it over to Michael. Um, this reminds me of the open workplace um, uh, concept where a lot of workplaces were moving to these, you know, giant rooms where everyone was working together. And it really seemed like this very futuristic way to work. It was very collaborative and community oriented. But what they actually found out was that for women in particular, it was actually a very difficult work environment for a number of different reasons. And so I, I think I really like what you're saying as far as understanding the behavioral data that can really see what is the impact, not just on work productivity, but also the culture. And, and are there some, I don't want to call it subconscious biases, but systemic issues that could, um, you know, preclude inclusivity or other types of cultural values that it's actually, in essence, really important to the company that they, you know, may not realize that they're, they're actually affecting. Uh, so I mean, go ahead. I know that Michael had another question, but sorry, Alex, did you want to respond to that? Just, yeah, Michael, if it's okay, just for a couple of minutes, because I think the, the modeling we're starting to see with these sort of insight engines, you can then start to put up, you know, diversity and inclusion. So you know, especially from the basics of you know, how many people are coming into the office, how many females, how many males, and however, again, from your cultural standpoint, you want to break DNI down into, you can actually start to, to, to look at that as long as you have people's buy-in. So you know, if you're communicating, we want to affect a positive change. So Michael, to your earlier comment, not being big brother, you know, well, actually, if we're wanting to stipulate that 50% of our management team are actually going to be female, we want them to be present, we want them to be inside this physical location, we have a purpose for doing that. Well, let's, you know, make sure that the company's doing it. And it's this sort of uh, uh, view of, you know, what we say, what we do. And it's very hard to build trust and trustworthiness if you don't have some empirical data to show we are actually doing what we're saying we're going to do. And, and here's, here's the outcome. And this is, you know, why we've actually got engagement going forward. Jack, did you want to pop in? I know yeah. you had a question. Yeah, it's really interesting to just to circle back with the different countries and how they operate. You know, I'm sitting here in my nice, comfortable home in New Jersey. It's cold outside, but it's okay. And yeah. but you you kind of forget what's going on in other places. So, for instance, when you mentioned you know about India and South Africa, so what happens? So, is it that you you want to go back into the office because the circumstances are such you don't have great internet connection. Um, how, how does it really play out? What do the companies do? Do they do they want people come back, or does it get this awkward situation where people say, "Hey, I want to go back to the office. I want to go there because I can't really work well," but then they may say, "Because of COVID, we rather you not come in." What do you see really happening from a practical standpoint in these places? So I think that. You have to start with the basic that you have a duty of care around health and well-being. No, and again, that that actually differs from country. In Australia, you're legally completely pushed around you know, uh, healthy health and, and safety. So if someone comes in and gets ill, you as the director, you no, know, can actually be legally you know, at, at fault. So you've got to really think. Wait, wait, so, 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 wait I'm sorry. With. This was this was in Australia. You said or. or yeah, Australia. So every every country will have their own rules and regulations. And I think you, yeah. you've got to start with there's a there's a duty of care as a company to the safety and well-being of your employees. Then there's actually a country regulatory view of of what they may be. And you know, even looking at NTT, you know, we work with 
across our HR function. I work very closely with our chief HR officer and the four different regions are all sort of working into different ways, you said, because some are actually more concerned around the, the continuation of Omicron and others, whereas others are actually highly vaccinated. Their cultures might be slightly different saying, you know what, we've been vaccinated. I'm quite open to come back in because the illness based around social isolation, I actually have a bigger impact of that than coming into an office where actually I believe I can communicate and do well again. And that comes back to that view of treating employees as individuals and that whole, you know, the whole change in model of your culture and purpose again from being hierarchical into thinking about how do you create communities and the communities start to create their philosophy and, and their guidelines of how they want to work. And as, you know, this is the big challenge, as long as the outcome is there, you know, as long as you're creating profits for the business, as long as you're retaining the best staff, which is really critical at the moment, then you know what, why isn't that a bad thing? So Alex, I, I'd like to do two things at the same time. I'd like to learn more about your observations on how the social isolation and perhaps remote work for certain people could actually be worse than the virus itself. I, I'd like to hear more about that. And are you trying to create any nudges to really get people on the well-being path, whether they feel that that's the right path for them or not? Uh, any nudges and, and just insights on what could be worse than Omicron? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you look at well-being programs, because I think a lot's been said in the press, every company thinks they need to do something. And so they go, here's an app, you know, and you go, okay, well, what do I do with the app? And it's you know, only 30%, I think, of people really buy into that engagement because they're not sure, well, again, where does the data go? If I'm, if I'm going to open up and really talk to my company about what's of issue to me, be it physically, mentally, you know, financial, well-being, being more than just a mental or physical well-being, I think you want to know that there's a two-way trust again and there's a, there's a more deeper program behind that. So, you know, what we're seeing now, and again, NTT is trying to drive this as much as possible, is in, introduce things like a WellBot. So how do you actually embed that into the systems that you, you work with on a daily basis? Uh, and then within that, how do you start to see how, how long someone is working? But also, how are they communicating with their social peers? If you're creating a social community, that's not just about work. You know, if, if you're not able to come in you know, during the week, well, let's just make sure we've got a social connection on a Friday. Or how do you have what we sort of term formal, informal water cooler moments? Where it might be someone outside of your scope of work, but actually they're really interesting. You know, they're a totally different part of the business, but I actually learn a lot. Um, and I think that's where we're starting to see nudge come in again from that that behavioural graph data and those networks of people. Uh, I think for many organisations, they're starting to see those network connections shrinking. And the more you sort of shrink that 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 network, you, the the less you have those different thoughts, processes from different cultures personality traits, extrovert, introvert, coming together and actually creating really good products and ideas. Um, and, and for us, that's why you've got to really think about how do you use technology to nudge and make sure that those, those sort of networks start to remain large, even if it's in a digital environment and not face-to-face. -face. And uh, before I pop over to Tessa, uh, what's your favorite nudge that you've seen uh, out there being used? What's, what's one you like? The most basic is get away from your desk. You know, it sounds really <laughs> basic, but you, you think of you know the the real 
basic hygiene factor is go for a walk, you know, go outside, get some sunlight. Um, I think so many people, and it's been sort of laughed about you know, with, with Zoom calls, you're, you're on half hour Zoom calls, sort of meeting have moved <clears> down <throat> from an hour into 20 minutes and 30 minutes. You get a quick break, next call, 30 minutes. And look, you know, I think for a period of time that was fine, but after two years, people, I think that's where burnout really starts to happen. So actually just a nudge to say, hey, Alex, you, you've done three in a row, you know, you need a 20 minute break. And the company backs that in terms of their philosophy. That's the best. I'll share one with you and then, and pop, over, then pop over to Tessa. I, I want to get closer to my students, like really see them and understand what's going on with them. And so I've been having these 30 to 60 minute dog walks with them because I have a dog and a lot of them are from other countries. They, they can't bring their dogs with them and they love it. It's, it's great for me. It's great for my dog. <laughs> yeah, I, going for a walk. It's, it's so simple, but there's a brilliance to it. Tessa. Yeah, so I, I want to kind of go back to your company and talk a little bit when you're working with organizations, because one of my research interests is, is really looking at companies who have, you know, a set of core values that's on their wall and on their website, and how do they actually get those values off the wall and into their operation, right? So as you're learning about an organization and through this behavioral data modeling, understanding what the employees want, the type of workplace environment that they want, how do you, as a company, work with your clients to actually operationalize those values? And uh, you mentioned benchmarks. Is it, you know, keeping track of it on a website or through the annual report? But what are the, what are the things that, that you do as a company to help your clients? So, Tessa, I think this is the biggest thing clients are grappling with now. And, and look, we as NTT, I think I've been thinking about it a while, but it, there are so many different factors that come into this. Um, you know, when you think of culture and purpose, you know, one thing NTT really drives is around you know, ESG, so sustainability goals as well. So, you know, we have been making commitments to market, you know, science-based commitments. We're also the business avenger for the UN sustainability goal number 11. You know, we work with the ecosystem around actually how we're going to reduce, you know, greenhouse gases. So all of those components is a is a critical aspect of actually new ways of working when you think about it. So it's not just in isolation of, yeah, we want to do our best because we think we need to change you know, the world and society and how, how it is. Well, why don't we start ourselves? So how many buildings do we actually need to utilize? Now if, so you start to think about, okay, so what type of environments are we going to drive and, and, and motivate people to actually you know, participate in? So is it again, hub type of head offices? And are those head offices just going to be creative and, and bring people together to socialize? So you mentioned about those open work environments. We're seeing them sort of move away from just rows of desks to actually take the desk out. You can do that at home, but actually come into the physical location. But only 30% of people will probably want to come in there because the other 70% might be at home doing their administrative work. So do we need all that occupancy space? And therefore, do we need all the energy? And actually, do we need as many floors operating if it's on a Friday? And so we're seeing the, the connection into technology is how do you actually digitize one, your real estate? So that's one of the first discussion points we're having with clients. You know, we've got 300 buildings, you know, a client I'm working with in Germany has 270. You know, the new buildings are fine, but how do you connect the others and start to understand who's coming in, how many and how much space do we require? And then how do we reduce energy consumption? 
And going back to that workplace report, there's 20% increase in uh, budget just on that task this year. Because I think most, most clients are thinking if we're going to get to, you know, carbon net zero by 2030, which, you know, COP26 is really driving. And, and again, policy is there. If you don't start to do that now, it's going to be very hard to get to that by 2030. So there's, there's those sort of components which people are saying, right, we'll think about our property footprint. How does that motivate new ways of working and where we're going to support? Uh, and then, you know, from the cultural standpoint, it comes back to then engaging and buying in with your people. So, you know, surveys. Most people do sort of quite static surveys, you know, twice a year and you get lots of information. I think more people are trying to move towards sentiment, you no know, shorter term pulse surveys. So one thing we've done is really start to get, are you happy? Are you not happy? What were you doing when you were happy? What were you doing when you're not happy? And just start to get really simple ideas of how we do that. And then start to drive around the premise of flexibility. What's the core aspects also from internally? So flexibility, being connected and making sure your tools, which will enable you to do that and then get quick, you know, pulse surveys. And then it's that, you know, almost you talked about nudge. You can say nudge is a sort of technology side, but actually how do you change your managers into being about more coaches and career progression and actually getting them to engage with their teams in a different way around that more social connection. Um, so that's all about training. It's about, again, making sure that they're rewarded, you know, intervening with moments that matter that actually people buy into and again, buy trust into. I, I wanna ask a quick follow-up because you, in that last part, you mentioned about managers and a buzzword we're hearing um, throughout these podcasts is the word empathy. And so when you talk about training, um, you know, has, has that come up with clients is, is really starting to train high potential employees or, or uh, management around the concept of empathy and how to really be able to read their, their teams and, and to get a pulse of the sentiment of their teams and know, okay, we're, we're moving into burnout territory, we need to take a step back or to encourage that kind of uh, behavior on the behalf of management to their employee groups. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think when you have, you know, Satya Nadella also saying their whole philosophy was based around empathy for how they've changed the, the, the culture. And obviously their stock price has done all right, but more importantly, you know, they're also attracting, retaining good talent as well. So I think lots of organizations are trying to look at who are those people who have probably were already on this journey you know, prior to the pandemic, who's who's digitizing, but for the sake of the well-being. And if, if, you, if you also listen to other organizations, it's about how do we make sure that the individual feels as though wherever they're working, they're going to get the best for them. So they're going to get the best training, the best learning. Their, their, their managers aren't necessarily someone who's just going to look down and make sure they're doing you know, their productivity tasks, but actually really have empathy and understand what they're going through. And if you do that, there's all the psychological sort of data points. If you really have empathy, you buy in and you have trust again. I think trust and empathy are two key areas. Then I want to stay. You know, if NTT looks after me at a time which is bad, I'm going to make sure I work with them and give, give my all back to them. And if you get teams of doing that, I think you really start to build that, the culture. And that's when you start changing and moving forward. Uh, Alex, I'm curious to... Uh go back to some comments you were making about 
some of the clients that had you know, a few hundred buildings, you know, in Boston, our downtown is a ghost town, like, like most places. And I'm like, I haven't heard about any foreclosures or financial distress with all this empty. Uh, I haven't seen people talking about turning it into residential, but I'm, I'm wondering, is that like a huge anxiety point for these companies that they have these empty buildings? And is that perhaps pushing some policy because they don't want to waste that money. I'm just curious what's going on. I'm really not hearing much about these assets that aren't being utilized. Yeah, I mean, there's a few different angles, again, from, from different parts of the organization. The, the data we had back from the report, because we also focused on real estate and property, um, and there's going to be a shift you know, into being more flexible spaces. So if you think of that hub and spoke type of environment, but also more more sort of local spoke environments which are closer to where employees actually live. So you've got the one side, which is like NTT Limited. We have our head office in, in London and we sort of come into London and it's a nice environment. But if you live, you know, for us up in, in Newcastle, well, that's, that's an eight hour journey. So actually, how do I feel connected into NTT and the brand? So should we actually start to have, you know, engagements with, you know, other providers like a WeWork or, you know, into Regis and, and the work that Mark Dixon is doing in, in that group, but actually brand, you know, as a physical space inside of one of their flexible working environments where people can go into a new. So, so we're seeing property strategy moving from do we own space into we're probably wanting to own those hubs. You know, Google made a big announcement this or last week about actually buying their London hubs because they want that to be a real transformational space. But actually overarching, if those 300 sites we may look at, you know, do we want to have the same long-term leases or do we want to be more flexible in how we look at that? So you're seeing this property ownership moving more to short-term leases, moving into more flexible contractual agreements with third parties, and then really sort of ramping up and down dependent on those, again, personality traits of the people you have. Thank you. So Alex, what I think the listeners would really, and people watching this would love to know, is what do you predict? And we're not going to hold you to it, even though I'm taking notes about everything you're going to say, but don't worry about it. So <laughs> in terms of what they want to know is, okay, do you get a sense of is COVID waning? And if so, what can we expect for workers? Are they going to then have their bosses say, you've got to come back in the office now because everything's safe? Or are they going to continue with remote work, hybrid work, and I got to give you credit. You were one of the first guys I spoke to that really were championing flexibility, meaning, hey, if you want to come in, come in. If you don't want to come in, don't come in. If you want to come in two days, that's fine. So do you think we'll just keep at this trajectory or are we going to kind of revert back to almost pre-COVID days? Well, this is such an interesting topic, right? Because I think we also see in the mass media the, the sort of the bipolar effects of different companies you had you know the Goldman Sachs the Morgan Stanley said no you, you got to come in otherwise that's it on the other side you know GitHub and others going why would you ever want to come in and that's that's I think what we see day, day in day out on the news that the data we saw was it was interesting because the first piece of report we did was enterprises said they they felt as though 80 percent of their employees would want to come back into the office so that that's the organization stated 80 percent this is across the whole world will come back in and it'll be similar to the way it was before. And then actually we asked the employees, so we have the voice of the employee survey exactly the same time, and it was totally different. You had 38% said, yes, actually they do wanna come back into a physical office, they like it. 
33%, hey, we want to be hybrid somehow. We'll come in some days, we'll come home. And 30% said, I actually really like being remote. And that again, those numbers differed slightly if you broke that down across country and, and age groups. But the reality is you pretty much got a third, a third, a third. And it comes back again to having to move to personality traits. If you are an organization and you say, we are gonna dictate that you have to come in three days a week and I wanna see you because I don't trust that you're gonna do your work. That's ultimately the sort of message you're saying. Then I think the new breed of people who are working going, yeah, I'm not sure I'm gonna buy into that. And 57% of the respondents said that they would actually look at well-being and work-life balance as the way of where they'd select to work. And only 23% said they're really happy in their current job. So if you're thinking, cool, any less than a quarter really happy, you know, coming towards two thirds of saying, actually, I'm looking for a new job. Then you get into this whole, you know, great attrition, you know, topic, which we have today. And companies are so worried about losing IP. If you, if you lose your people, and that's really the IP, however good AI and ML is, you really need people to even take that data and, and give their view on it. So that's, that's the interesting topic that I see uh, being discussed at the moment. And I don't think it's a percentage of when you're in an office, when you're not. I think it comes back to, you've got to start giving more opportunity for people to make their, their rules for how they operate around the outcomes that they need to do. I have a quick follow-up to that, and I know Jack's going to bring us to a close since we're at the half hour, but um, just a quick question. Do you think that this is part of the generational shift, though, in the workforce with millennials and Gen Z coming up, and they have such different values around, hey, I, want, I, I, I don't want to work 24-7. I want to take care of myself. I want to have a life. So do you think it's, it's, it's a mix between the pandemic and this kind of gener generational workforce shift, or do you think it's more about the pandemic actually changing and allowing us two years to reevaluate what we want as a workforce? I actually think, I mean, even me, if I look at me, I, I was on an airplane a lot. I was, I was traveling a lot and actually I really enjoyed that. And I got to really meet people. So I properly connected with them. But if I look back at, I probably spent a lot of time away from my children were growing up if if i were to be 10 years younger would i do the same amount of traveling and was it really necessary so i, I do think traveling and connecting is important uh, and, I, and you're starting to see you know michael you talked about you know different cities and regions you know environments where it's really beautiful are saying hey come and come and live here you can work remotely and we'll give you ten thousand pounds and reduce your taxes and actually, you know, why wouldn't you start to do that? And, and that's targeting a certain generation. I also agree that, yeah, a new generation is coming into the, the marketplace. And I think PwC had a great pulse survey where they started to say for the first time, they were seeing it wasn't just remuneration being the number one motivator of where you work. It really is, can you actually prove that you have a work-life balance? Do your rewards program really do more than just pay me well, but what else am I going to get? And I, and that comes back into what I said about sustainability. If, if you don't you know, if you actually have a purpose yourself as an individual and a company isn't really doing what they're saying they're doing around those wider, wider societal issues, I think you're also going to have an issue about really attracting and retaining the best talent. Alex, I want to kind of go back to before we head out, what Mike brought up before about Boston. I wonder with Goldman Sachs, you know, David Solomon, the CEO, said, you know, remote work is an aberration and J, you know, Jamie Dimon for JP Morgan was like, we got to get back in here. But interviewing a lot of these folks, the undercurrent I get, and I, I wonder if you see this in, in London too, is that when people weren't coming back to New York, crime went up, violence went up, uh, 
drug uses out in the street was up. And, and I wonder how much of it is that they're not being arrogant to say, get back in, but maybe there's some political pressure put on them saying, hey, you gotta have some people coming and enough people coming back because if you don't, what's gonna happen, <clears throat> people are gonna be afraid to come back into New York. And someone who grew up there during the seventies, it was very dangerous. Yeah. It was very violent. It could easily return. So I, have you seen that in other countries too, where kind of the politicians are saying to the business leaders, hey, hey folks, can you really try to get some people back? And then also you have that whole ecosystem of businesses that surround, let's take Wall Street. And, and Midtown Manhattan, where a lot of the investment banks and brokers are. So if if they leave or they're not coming in, what happens to the restaurants, the mom and pop shops, all the different chains? So it gets it gets kind of complicated. Are you are you seeing are you seeing across the world that big cities, the politicians are getting a little nervous and putting a little pressure to bring people back? Yeah, I mean you, you can see <clears throat> it in the UK at the moment. I mean definitely this week as well, right? There's a, there's a lot of pressure on our, our government. Around you know motivating for for change because yeah GDP has issues right I mean the UK probably had the worst fall and we're promoting we've got the, the the fastest growing GDP and you know at the moment but it's because of where we came from but but actually the issue is how are we motivating all those other you know supply chains so you know millions of people coming into London or into Manchester as you said purchasing food going to coffee shops also about the you know the actual office leasing price you know how do you actually start to look at that so I, I do think there is a motivation from the pol politicians about getting organizations to motivate people to come back in I think corporations are also paranoid that we're not connecting enough by getting people in but you've got to have a purpose you've got to define why should someone come back in and want to come back in but lastly what I think is interesting and Detroit was similar we're starting to see in London more space being then recalibrated or redesigned into actual community space so we won't actually have an office building, we'll put more flats there. And in London, so many buildings were bought as an asset, you're actually starting to lose a lot of the culture because no one was there, no one would go to the pub because you know everyone has bought six buildings because it's a great asset. So actually with that change, you're starting to see populations come back into cities, but in different ways. And that, that hopefully in a longer term view will re replenish and, and provide value back into the society. Well, that's great. I mean, it, it's, it's so interesting to get a perspective where it's not just, let's say US focus, which we tend to do here and, and hear about what's going on around the world. So I really appreciate your sharing with us. Um, I know we have to head out. We have a hard stop for you. We don't wanna take up much too much time. Do you have a sense, can your data show, are we almost at the end of this whole COVID thing? Can you kind of get those numbers from what you do or that's not really your thing? If I could do state that, I'd be <laughs> in this moment. It's been interesting this week, though, that Denmark's the first yes. country to say we're going back to being totally, you know, we're just going to move forward. And I think the UK is moving towards that point. And who knows what might be the next variant. But I think I think certain countries are doing it. And if it has a positive impact and, you know, you got to look at what happens with the, the healthcare system. But, you know, people will then start to think follow through with that if they believe it's of value. Excellent. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Alex, Tessa, Mike, any, any last words before we no, head out? Just Alex, we could spend the day. Just <laughs> right? <laughs> you have a great job, by the way. I love this. You know, you get to think what's going to happen, where things are going. It's awesome. And, it, and, and for the people watching this, it, it's kind of gives food for thought. It also kind of opens up where, where there's so many different variations of what's happening around the world that they may not have realized. So this is fantastic. I really, really appreciate you taking all this time, Alex. Thank you so much.
Uh, thank you. Really Excellent. enjoyed it. Nice to meet everyone. Excellent. Thank you, thank you everyone. Bye, Alex. Bye.